as a father, as a member of the dad cohort um, of the world and of our church here, uh, there's a few things that fathers are known for. So one of them is our impeccable sense of style. You know, dads are just known for great sense of style, the white Costco, you know, shoes or whatever. Um, yeah, kind of trying to be humorous. It's not going real well up here, but that's okay. Um, we're really good at napping, I think, as a group. Fathers as a group, really good at napping. Can nap just about anywhere. Um, it's a skill that I've developed. I'm proud of my ability to nap wherever. But one of the things that we're known for is, of course, our joke telling. Now, when I was a kid, we didn't have dad jokes. We just had jokes. And then at some point, they became dad jokes, like a particular kind of joke is a dad joke. But, you know, I don't know what, what's up with that. But I do have a few dad jokes I'd like to share with you this morning. So here we go. Um, first one is this. How much does a chimney cost? Nothing. It's on the house. How does a tree connect to the internet? It logs on. Yeah, that's the correct response. Kind of a groan. A woman calls her husband who's driving home from work. She said, be careful. There's a wrong way driver on the road. And his response is, no, there's not. There's hundreds of them. Okay, one more. What is E.T. short for? He's got little legs. All right, that was a bad one. But that was my favorite one. That was my favorite one. And I tried, I was trying to think how to tie this into the message somehow, that we all fall short of the glory of God, which is the passage we're looking at uh, today. But I'm not even going to try to do that. I guess that's my best attempt, is we all fall short of the glory of God. Um, We are in a portion of our study in the book of Romans. I encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 3 in your Bibles or devices or whatever, and we're going to jump in in just a few moments into our study in verse 21. So Romans 3, we're going to finish up that chapter today. In the last three Sundays, there has been this kind of tension building up in the text of the problem of sin. What do we do with this sin problem? What about the wrath of God? What are we supposed to do about that? How should we think about that? Where will we find righteousness? That's the need that Paul has been raising. Humans are in desperate need of God's righteousness. They need something that only God can provide. How do we do this? Where does this come from? And I'm about to use an example, and I know that when I use examples like this, I'm always, I'm always aware of the fact that there are people in this room who know way more about this topic than me, and so I hope uh, this, I, I don't say this incorrectly, but I'm going to use an example from the world of music. Sometimes I'll use like, you know, growing vegetables as an illustration, knowing that I'm like the worst at that, and some of you are really good at that, um, or a science illustration, and I'm aware that some of you know way more about science than I do, but this one's from the world of music, and once again, I know that many of you in this room know a lot more about music than I do. <laughs> But there's this concept that I've been learning about where it's the, the resolution in music, where the chords, you know, if you're thinking about a piano or something, there'll be all these dissonant chords played for a while. And the purpose of this is to build tension so that when the beautiful melody comes back, it is this feeling of this resolution, which is what it's called. It resolved. The music resolves into the beautiful melody. Hopefully I use that correctly, but this is what Paul is doing. He's building the tension, playing these dissonant chords about what our situation is, and he'll eventually resolve it into this beautiful melody of the gospel. 
Another example from the world of electronic music would be an example of the DJ kind of, you know, building up to the beat about to drop. You know, it's this music is building and building and building and building. You can tell that it's building up to something and then the beat drops, you know, and this is another, a similar kind of idea. And so Paul is about to drop the gospel beat here. And that's what's about to happen in Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 26. We're going to jump in there and read those first few verses here. It says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So a couple things we see in this passage right off the bat. He says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God, which is our desperate need, that's the, we're building up and building up and building up. We need righteousness. Where is this righteousness going to come from? And he says, it has been manifested. It's just been given. It's, it's appeared and it's apart from the law, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And Paul's going to go into great detail on this in the next few chapters in the book of Romans, where it has been uh, predicted or borne witness to that this is not a new thing out of nowhere. This is something that the Old Testament has been telling the story of over and over again. And he uses this word um, redemption here. And that word has deep biblical meaning all through the Old Testament. This idea of uh, the firstborn being redeemed or land being redeemed or the way the nation of Israel was redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. This concept comes up over and over again. He said the prophets, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. More on that in the, in the coming weeks. He talks about the glory of God and how we all fall, fall short, like E.T., of um, the glory of God. Um, we're not, we don't measure up to God's glory, right? God's glory is, are the things that are manifested about him, the things that are visible, the things that we see about who God is, how big God is, how good God is. And he says, we all fall short. And that's the point of really Romans chapters one through three is that all of us have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. We've missed the mark, which is a literal definition of one of the words that gets translated sin in our New Testament is missing the mark. This is the mark. This is what God is calling us to. This is what he requires of us. And we've all missed it. We've all fallen short. This idea of falling short of God's glory, I want you to think about it in this way. If we all went to the coast, we went to uh, the you know, Pacific Ocean, and we say, all right, we're going to get several swimmers, right? Someone who barely knows how to swim, someone who's like an average swimmer, and then someone who's an Olympic swimmer, and they're all given the same task. Each one of them is supposed to swim to Japan. 
uh, and we say, okay, go ahead and get started. You know, and the person who can barely swim, they get out just a few yards. They're instantly struggling as soon as the water is, you know, over their head and they can't stay above the water and sadly they drown, right? The better swimmer, the kind of average swimmer, they get out there, maybe they make it a mile, but they eventually are struggling. They can't paddle anymore. They can't stay afloat anymore and they eventually drown as well. Then we've got the Olympic swimmer. And that person's been training all their life for this moment, right? And they get out there and they swim and they swim and they make it mile after mile after mile. But of course, the same exact thing happens with them. Eventually, they're not going to make it to Japan. They make it 20 miles, 30 miles, and then eventually they drown as well. Every single one of them falls short of this goal that's so far out there. Each one of them falls short. Maybe one made it a little bit further than the other, but they fell short of the glory of God, so to speak, in this illustration. They fell short of making it all the way to Japan. Every single person has fallen short of God's glory. Maybe some of them make it further than the other, but all of us fall short of the glory of God. Paul says there's no distinction. But then he gives us this incredible good news that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There is no distinction. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, which is the main point of the book of Romans. Verses 22 through like 25. If you understand the concepts that Paul is talking about here, you understand the book of Romans. All of it is kind of an exposition of verses 22 through 25. These Concepts for us help us understand what the entire book of Romans is about. So we're going to spend a good chunk of time this morning on verses 22 through 25. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is amazing news. This is amazing. This is the good news. This is literally what the word gospel means is good news. And then there's three huge words used in verses 24 and 25. And I want to put them all on the screen here because we're going to talk about them. There they are. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Now, we'll we'll talk about them a little bit out of order there. Redemption first, then justification, then propitiation that these words are very important concepts. So let's leave them up on the the screen for a few moments. You know, when you've got, you want to say a lot with one word, there's different ways we do this in our culture. Like you've got, maybe at your work, you've got acronyms that you use. You've got this way of describing a certain machine or a certain process that you use, and you use this acronym. And it's this short way of talking about this big thing. It's like, rather than saying a whole paragraph about what you're talking about, you just use this short phrase. In our, in our culture, we have this word that people use, zeitgeist. And it's a, I, I like this word. It literally means in German, spirit of the time, zeitgeist. But, but it, it's this way of describing, hey, what's in the water? What people are thinking? It's, 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 a, it's a whole paragraph all in one word, this weird German word, zeitgeist, which is the spirit of the age, the way people tend to think at this moment of time, this kind of the way that ideas tend to spread in the zeitgeist. And so it's this one word. If you were in the medical field, you've got lots of these acronyms and things that people use as shorthand to describe a lot of things. Now, 
We've heard this before probably that the Inuits have 47 words for snow. Have you ever heard this? That because there's so much of it, they have this very detailed vocabulary to describe different aspects of snow, different types of snow, the way snow falls. There's this very detailed vocabulary to describe this thing that they have a lot of in a similar way with theology and salvation and the gospel. Because we have so much of God's grace and because it does so many different things, there's this vocabulary around it to describe these huge concepts of what Jesus has done for us. And each of these words have not only this big theological, a whole paragraph of description that kind of goes with each one of them, and we'll, I'll try to make it as simple as possible so that when you leave this morning, you have a really good grasp of what each of these words mean. You know, a couple of them we use, those first two we'll use in our culture from time to time. The bottom one is kind of a unique one. But these concepts are big, and there's locations attached to each of them too that I want you to think about that will help you think about what these words mean. Justification... Is, is a courtroom word. This is a word that would be used in the, in the courtroom. Redemption is a marketplace word. And propitiation is a word that would, that's very important in the temple, the way that, that um, God was worshipped in the Old Testament. So let's talk about each of these words. Let's put the word um, justification up there first. Justification, as I mentioned, is a legal word. We'll talk about this in the sense of um, the, you know, is a shooting justified, for example? This is the kind of thing that will be in the news. Like there was a shooting and was it justified? Is the person in trouble or was it justified what happened there? We, we, will, we understand this word as being made acceptable to God in a legal sense. Our legal standing before a heavenly, holy God is we are being made acceptable in his sight through justification. We are justified by his grace as a gift. We, we think about sometimes our, our records when it comes to maybe your legal record, when it comes to your workplace record. How sinister is it to hear that that's going to go on your permanent record? Right? We hear those kinds of phrases sometimes. I remember in school, um, my understanding when I was in middle school was that my grades didn't really matter until I got to high school. Because that was going to, my high school record that was going to be how I got into college or how good of a college I got into or whatever. And so the, the lesson that I internalized from that is that I'm not going to try until I get to high school. I'm just going to phone it in in middle school. And then when I get to high school, my grades start mattering. And that's, that's what I did. I'm not proud of that. But this is... This is the idea, right? Justification is about your, your record. It's about your standing. It's about what's in the folder. It's about your, your, you know, your military service record, your driving record, your resume, right? These all have to do with your standing, what your life has accumulated, what your record looks like. All of life is that way. And so we kind of feel like God must be that way as well, that he looks at us based on our track record, based on what we've done. But the good news of justification is that Jesus gives us his record. That when God looks at us, he, he, and he opens our permanent record, so to speak, in heaven, it just has Jesus' resume on it, in his record. That this is what justification means. We are made right before a heavenly, before our holy God, by giving the record of Christ, Christ in like a legal sense. We are united with 
Christ. We are set free from sin and given this holy, righteous record. One of the shorthand ways of of remembering what this word means, justified, is just as if I'd never sinned. And again, not just to a place of being morally neutral. We talked about this last week. It's not just that we're neutral now. We're on kind of level ground. The slate's been wiped clean. No, 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 no. It's more than that. That's forgiveness. And that's amazing news as well. But it is that we are given the record of God. There was a minister and writer named Marcus Lone was quoted by John Stott in his commentary in the book of Romans. And he says, it's more than forgiveness, right? The voice that speaks of forgiveness will say, you may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the voice that speaks of justification says, you may come. You are welcome to all my love in my presence. Justification means we can enter the presence of God because we bear Christ's record. Let's talk about redemption next. This word we use frequently in our culture. We, we understand this concept of redemption. You redeem a coupon. You redeem a gift card. This is um, a word that we use in the sense of commerce. This is a marketplace word. And the Bible idea is very similar. It's that we need to be released from slavery. We need to be pardoned. We need to be purchased. A payment needs to be made for us. This is a marketplace word. We talked last week about this idea of us all being under sin, that sin is not just an action. It's not just an activity. It is a power that we need to be released from. He'll talk more about this, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, that we are slaves to sin before Christ sets us free. We're literally in, in chains, so not literally in chains, but figuratively in chains and in slavery to sin. And we're standing up on the block at the slave market. And Christ, at the ultimate price, pays the penalty for our sins and buys our freedom. This is what redemption means. Finally, let's talk about propitiation. And when I use the word finally, I don't mean I'm at the end of my message. I'm not. But uh, I'm at the end of these three things we're talking about. Propitiation. This is a weird word. This is not a word we tend to use in our culture. In fact, if you want to sound very smart, maybe you can use this word in a a sentence, but no one will know what you're talking about. So let's talk about what this word means. You can kind of think about this word divided up into that pro, and then you see the word pity in the middle. And that's kind of helps us understand what this word means. This specifically means a turning away of God's wrath, changing the way God feels about us and it pro pity. Like rather than being wrathful, it's this sense of pity. This has everything to do with chapters one through three of Romans. Chapter one, it says the wrath of God is revealed. What do we do about this wrath of God that is revealed? We, it needs to be turned away. That wrath needs to be directed towards Jesus in our case. And this is not, this is the least popular of the three words that I'm talking about right now in our culture. People are uncomfortable with with the idea of the wrath of God. And in discomfort with this concept, people will try to explain what Jesus did on the cross in some different way. If If God was not wrathful at sin and needed to direct his wrath towards sin, which he did on the cross, what's the other explanation of why Jesus had to go through this agonizing death on the cross? What was he doing there? 
Some kind of liberal theologians and stuff will describe it. Well, he was just expressing how much he loves us. He was dying this, this death as this sort of symbolic action of showing how much he loves his people. And I, I'm borrowing an illustration here from Pastor J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina. He says, imagine if I was just trying to explain to my children how much I love them. And, and I did it this way. We're walking along a busy street and I go, kids, I want you to know how much I love you. They go, okay, dad. And then I just hurl myself in front of a moving car. I, go, that, I don't understand why you did that. What was that all about? You know, that, that, why, that you hurting yourself or dying by throwing yourself in front of a car doesn't actually explain how much you love me. Well, the, the circumstance is completely different if I'm rescuing them from something. A car is coming towards them and I throw them out of the way and I get, end up getting hit by the car. That is a totally different situation, isn't it? In a similar way, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. He took the impact for us. He took the penalty for us. Because we needed someone to do something about the wrath of God. And this satisfied this this legal situation, this spiritual situation. We're going to talk more about that um, in a few moments. In China, there's a uh, apparently... Um, a trend where incredibly wealthy people will, who have committed crimes will hire body doubles to take their prison sentence for them. It's a thing. So there was a uh, very wealthy 20-year-old who was drag racing with his friends and he struck and killed a pedestrian. And he received a three-year prison sentence. But the man that went to court for him and then eventually served time for him, there was rumors like, this guy doesn't look exactly like that other guy. He looks similar, but I don't think that's him. And what happened is that he hired somebody to take his prison sentence for him. There was a demolition company that illegally demolished a home, and they hired a destitute man and promised him $31 for each day that that person spent in jail. And because he was very desperate, he took it. And in China, the practice is so common that there's even a term for it, substitute criminal. And the part of me that loves justice and the part of me that wants to see the right thing being done hates this concept, you know? But I'm so incredibly grateful that Jesus was my substitute criminal, that he took the penalty that I deserved in his own body on the cross. So we, we understand these three words a little bit better, redemption, justification, and propitiation. We've got to talk about how, is this fair? Because the Apostle Paul talks about this in verse uh, 26. He says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It says, God had sort of a problem with our sin. How can you... How can he be a God of love and a God of justice? In the cross, he is both of those things. How can he be fair and good at the same time? God, the wrath of God was poured out on God. That's how. God the Son went to the cross and God the Father's wrath was poured out upon him. And in that, he could be both just and the justifier, the one who solves our problem. With any other solution, if you and I were trying to come up with a solution to this, like how do we deal with the wrath of God? Well, maybe he could just let it go, let it slide this time. 
that we diminish who God is, the holiness and the righteousness of God, or we diminish what sin is. But the only thing that has both a high view of God and realizes just how high the stakes are of sin, that the only way of resolving this is what Jesus did on the cross. So God justly justifies the unjust, to use a paraphrase from John Stott. Now let's continue reading verses 27 to 31. We're going to finish up chapter 3 today. It says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This portion, these few verses we just read here, will set us up for the next few weeks of our study in the the book of Romans. Paul is going to go back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and explain how the cross makes sense in the the Old Covenant. He's going to explain all of of this, and so this is sort of the intro to that. But there's one thing I want to focus on um, as we're concluding our time together this morning, and that's in verse 27. It says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Paul says, um, we, we stand before God in need of a savior. And that's not something that we boast about. We don't, we don't go like, I'm so proud of everything I bring to the table before a heavenly God, before a holy God. I'm, I'm standing in front of God. He said at the end of the passage we read last time, that we, all mouths are silenced. We're just standing there before the God of the universe in need of help. And God provides this help in the, in the form of the cross. And so do we boast? Like, how do we feel about this kind of thing? What do we take pride in? You know, pride is kind of the, the, one of the core sins in our lives. It's thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, not having the proper humility. We kind of place ourselves above other people. What do we boast about? Not our ability to live up to God's standards, not our track record. We're all on the same level playing field. What can we take pride in? Paul will say in Galatians chapter 6 what he boasts in. This is the only thing he boasts in. In Galatians 6 verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm going to boast about anything. It's about what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to boast about the cross. And through the cross, I have died to the world. The world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. There's a whole different sense of a value system and, and like what matters most. He says, I don't boast about the things that maybe I would have boasted about before. The way I gain status is not the same anymore. I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we, how do we feel about that? What do we do with that? Every time Paul will give an, an instruction to the churches that he writes to about the way that they should live, it's always connected to what Jesus has done for us, who we are in Christ, our new identity, and what Jesus has done for us. Every time he says, do, do this thing, it always comes after his explanation of what Jesus has done for us. 
He's talking about sexual purity in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. And he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's appealing to this idea of redemption. You were bought at a price, and it was a high price. So glorify God in your body. These instructions about the way we should live and what Jesus has done for us are a package deal. They fit together hand in hand. We should live this way because this is our new reality. This is what Jesus has done for us. And the more we understand these concepts, the gospel message, things like redemption, justification, propitiation, I think the more likely we are to live in a way that brings honor and glory to God. One other thing I want you to think about when you're concluding this, uh, in, in, this idea of how should we feel about the good news of Jesus is this same idea that he brought up. You were bought with a price. We were redeemed. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you've been redeemed by Jesus. You've been bought off of the slave auction. And the price paid was, was infinite. There was no higher price paid for anything There has never been a higher price paid than what Jesus did for us. And that should make us feel some things. That should make us feel gratitude. That should make us feel joy. And I want to illustrate it this way. I'm I'm not a big fan of yard sales. And I know that that makes me like a weirdo in Spokane because we love yard sales in Spokane. Like we're all about them, the garage sales, the thrift shops, all the, you know. But one of the reasons why I don't like it is it seems like a lot of work to put my stuff out there for people to buy. And I, I've never had a, you guys can teach me. I've never had a yard sale that's made a ton of money. I know some of you know, it's a science. You know, you've got it all, all figured out. But one of the things that I struggle with is how to price stuff. I'm like, I do not know what the Chuck Norris Total Gym should cost, you know, when I put it out there on the, <laughs> on the front of my house there. I don't know, I don't know. I'm walking around with a marker and a tag and some, maybe some masking tape trying to put prices on things. And I just don't know what they cost. And really, what, what the reality is, is they're worth what someone will pay for them. It's like, this is valuable to somebody, and if someone wants to pay this for it, that'll tell me how valuable it is. And I think in a similar way, we're, we're worth what someone is willing to pay for us. Our, our sense of worth should come from our understanding about that. Our culture gives us constant messages about where worth comes from. It's your youth, it's your bank account balance, it's whatever job you have, it's whatever whatever fame you have. Kind of social media is sort of built on this idea. Building up your your fame and and popularity and things like that. And it's this, if we buy into what the world is telling us, it's almost like we're walking around with that piece of masking tape and a marker and asking everybody to tell us what we're worth. Hey, what am I worth? What, am, I, am I valuable? Do I matter? And we assume they know what we're worth. Strangers sometimes. What, what, what am I worth? But decisively, once and for all, a statement has been made about our worth by Jesus on the cross. And if we understand that, that changes Everything. Jesus said, this is what you are worth. And he spread out his arms and died on the cross for our sins. Took the penalty that we deserved. As, as, he paid our ransom. 
He set us free because he loves us. And if we can understand this, this transforms everything. And listen, I I mean something more than just knowing this in your head. I mean knowing this in your heart. And this is fuel for living for him. This is, helps us understand what our value is. If we have this question answered once and for all by Jesus for us, we don't need to ask what other people think we're worth. We know what we're worth. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I believe um, that one of the roles of, of your, the Holy Spirit, Lord, is to help remind us of what is true and not just help us to know what's true, but to help us experience the truth. And Lord, as we've been talking about these big concepts this morning, redemption, justification, propitiation, Lord, you have spoken to our worth and you've, spoke, you've given us some insight into how salvation and redemption works and we are grateful. And Lord, I pray that this gratitude would fuel a life lived for you and a life of deep security in how you see us. Lord, that we can be people who have experienced your redemption, experienced your transformation, experienced the benefits of propitiation and being justified before you. And that, Lord, as we follow you, you transform us, you mold us into the image of your son. But Lord, I don't think we're ready to sign up for that journey until we, we, we know just how, how much, how loved we are and how transformed we are and what your plan is for us. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning you would have given us some insight into who you are and how deeply we are loved. The statement of worth, the statement of affection that you've given towards us. Lord, may we not just know it in our heads, but experience it in our hearts. You are so good, Lord. We are so grateful. Lord, help us now as we worship you to celebrate your goodness and your grace. We praise you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.